Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. We talk about the different traditions we do. How many of you here watch movies as part of your tradition? Maybe you pop them on while you're doing other stuff. Maybe you sit down as a family. Okay, different movies. What are some of the movies you watch? Elf, Elf right away, yes. White Christmas? I don't even know that one. All right, keep going. What else? What else we got? Home Alone, yep. Any Grinch? Any people watch The Grinch here? Would you acknowledge that? A couple people are proud that you're not very happy, but all right, there you go. JD is an elder. Pray for him. Uh, glad for that. You get Die Hard. Is that a Christmas movie? I'm thinking that, all right, it has been done. It's official at our church. Die Hard is a Christmas. How could it not be a Christmas movie, right? They're at a Christmas party, and some terrorists try to take over, and then a guy from New York rescues everybody in L.A. Like, it's amazing. What's the best Christmas movie? It's a Wonderful Life, A Christmas Story. Here's some different ones. Die Hard. <laughs> how do you compare It's a Wonderful Life with Die Hard? Like, how do you do that, really? Like, think about that. And one of the, story, one of them that was mentioned, A Christmas Story. Some of you, that the name's so generic, you've seen it, but you don't even know which movie I'm talking about. It's, it happens, if you haven't seen it, there's a, usually a movie marathon on like TBS or TNT, I don't know the channel, you can figure that out on your own, but they'll do 24-hour movie marathon of a Christmas story. If you haven't seen the movie, it's an adult who's giving a narration of his Christmas when he was nine years old, and he wanted a specific gift, but that's not what makes the movie even awesome. There's so many quotable lines, so many iconic scenes in that movie, as Ralphie Parker relives his nine-year-old Christmas. And there's these different characters, like his dad, he calls the old man, right? That's not a very honorable title, by the way. That's now that I'm getting older. Anyway, how about when, he gets, when dad gets the present, the, the prize, I'm sorry, not the present, the prize. Comes in the box, frigile. It's Italian, in case you didn't know. And he pulls it open. It's the most hideous thing you've ever seen. A leg lamp? And mom's so humiliated, and he puts it in the front window? Iconic scene, right? Growing up in the Midwest, it saved me some pain and difficulty. When it be snow outside, and somebody triple-dog dares you to put your tongue on a, on a pole or something, and get stuck out there, like, I knew not to do that, thanks to that movie. Lots of wisdom being dropped in that movie there. But you know, the whole movie's about getting that one gift, right? What's the gift? Not just a BB gun, the Red Rider BB gun. And he talks about it through the whole movie, doesn't he? It's like it doesn't matter what's going on. The, the BB gun keeps coming. He's writing a paper for his teacher. Do you remember he writes that paper and he's convinced he's going to win a prize? Like they're going to honor him for writing such an amazing literary piece. And he gets a C plus. <laughs> and then there's a statement on it. Do you remember the quote? You'll shoot your eye out. That's right. Quotable line. The whole movie builds to the scene of Christmas morning. Whether well, it's the dogs coming through and they eat duck and like all that different kinds. It all builds to this when they're opening presents and there's a scene. Mom and dad are opening presents. His younger brother's opening presents. He's opening presents. Remember some of the presents he gets? Remember Aunt Clara? What did Aunt Clara give him? Well, we got a picture, I think. Here it is. If you haven't seen it. And remember, they unwrap all the presents. There's paper all over the floor. His brother's falling asleep. He's sitting on the couch with his mom and his dad. His dad says, you know, how was your Christmas? And he's, he's good, he's, you know, gracious. He didn't get the Red Rider BB gun. It's like, Did you get everything you wanted? He says, almost. Oh, there's always next year. And then dad says, hey, what's that over there behind the desk? And then Ralphie looks like, this might be a dream. My dream might be coming true. And he said, go over there and check it out. Now, if you haven't seen the movie or you watch it this year because you watch it every year, 
Watch the dad's response. The dad's been a crump, this angry, crotchety, grumpy old man, this whole yelling at the furnace, the neighbor's hillbilly neighbor's dogs. Like, he's just mad about everything in life. But when his son goes to get this BB gun, he's giggling. His eyes are huge. And Ralphie grabs the, the package, and it's the box for the gun, and he pulls it open, and it's the Red Rider BB gun. And then he says what any kid would say in that moment. You wanted it so bad. He says, That moment, that look on his face, that's what we're talking about in this series. Wonder. Last week, I tried to get you to think about it by saying, you know, what would be in this box for you? And some of you said, you know, electronic footballs and Barbie sets and somebody said a shotgun and golf clubs and various things that would be for you. But the goal is not to get you to want more presents. I want us to think about the one whose glory never fades, Jesus Christ. But we lose our wonder. How does that happen that he stays glorious, but we lose our wonder of him? It's because our hearts are prone to wander. They're deceptive and wicked. And my heart, I know, at least I can speak from experience, is I get distracted. And there's other things. And the cares of this life and shiny objects and different stuff that draw me away from him. And so what needs to happen is not anything that we need to present him in a more glorious way. Is that our hearts need to remember the wonder of our Savior Jesus Christ. And so today I want to ask you the same question I asked you last week. What would it take for you? Have the wonder of Jesus restored in your heart this Christmas? And today what we're going to talk about, last week we talked about the wonder of his promises, and that alone should restore our wonder, because thousands of promises in the Bible, they're all yes in Jesus, amen? But today we're going to talk about the wonder of worship. And before we jump into our passage, it's Matthew chapter 2, but before we jump there, I want to get us all on the same page about what the word worship even means, because different people hear that, and the amount of people in this room, there's probably hundreds of different definitions of what worship is. And you can Google it online, what is worship? Some people are way too verbose. And talking about what worship is, I want to give you a simple definition. I've stolen it from a guy named Louis Giglio. He's a pastor in Atlanta. And he simply says this, and I think whether you're a believer or not a believer in Jesus, whether you have a different religion, whether you have no religion at all, that you'll, you'll be able to grasp this definition of worship. That worship is our response to what we value most. Worship is our response to what we value most. And so with that in mind, let's look at this really familiar passage of Scripture in Matthew chapter 2. Maybe the most common of all the Christmas stories, apart from there being no room in the inn, is this, these magi that are coming for, because they've seen a star for this one born king of the Jews. But it's interesting when you read Matthew's account what he has and hasn't said. Sometimes in our minds we fill in gaps of the story, but here's what Matthew's talked about. A genealogy where he's saying that all these promises you've been waiting for for 4,000 years, they're true in Jesus. That's the genealogy. There's a lot of questionable characters in this genealogy, which Matthew's intentionally showing us that God's got a plan for everyone. And then there's Joseph, where an angel visits him in a dream and tells him, hey, Mary, she is pregnant. It's not yours. It's my baby. Emmanuel, God with us. God's presence at the beginning of Matthew. God's presence at the end of Matthew, too. Maybe God's saying something with that. He says, you give him the name Jesus. Here's why. Because he's going to save his people, you, me, from our sins. And Joseph accepts that. And what would you think would happen next? A wedding ceremony? Maybe the no room in the inn story? None of that. We don't get any of that in Matthew. The next thing that happens is two years after the birth of Jesus. Well, that is going to mess some of y'all up, just so you know. I'm not trying to make you mad, just trying to teach you the Bible. 
what happens in the passage we're looking at here is not the birth account of Jesus. This is about two years later. We know this because he's a child, not a baby. He's in a house. He's not at the stable. And then when, Ma- when, he, when uh, Herod tries to assess how old Jesus is, he goes and he kills all the babies in Bethlehem, all the boys that are born two years and under. And so Jesus might be two years old in this story. Let's look at it together. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men, or some of your pastors say magi, same thing, they're astrologers. They came from the east, came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who's been born, that's a key word, you might underline that, been born king of the Jews, for we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now here's the thing, you can read passages of scripture a hundred times and God show you something different every time. It's one of the amazing things about the Bible. I've preached this passage lots of times. There's a question I've never asked myself until this year. Why are they coming to worship? Why are they worshiping at all? In fact, worship stuck out to me this time in this passage of Scripture, unlike ever before. If you go through the passage, there's 11 verses for this account. Three times you find the word worship. For those of you who have your own Bible, you might want to glance down. It's in verse 2, we just read it, verse 8 and verse 11. And you see three different groups of people worshiping, and we always focus on these magi, these wise men, but why? Why do they worship at all? Why are these pagans from the east, I believe maybe as far away as Babylon, 900 miles away, why are they coming, much less a Jewish king, why are they coming all this way? Why are they? And one of the simple answers is this. It's because we were created to worship. We're all worshiping. Remember our definition of worship? It's our response to what we value most. Now, we don't all worship the same thing, but we're all worshiping all the time. Just like some of you have kids, or you're going to be around kids, or maybe grandkids. No one had to teach them to get excited about something they think is good. And what do they do? They clap their hands. Before they can even talk, ah! Like they shout, like, ah, that's good, I want that. See? Perfect. <laughs> Thank you for helping with the sermon today. They dance. Sorry, Baptist. It just happens. It's not sin nature. It's just part of who you are. It's just... And do you know there's a whole book in the Bible where God tells us how he wants us to worship him? It's called the Psalms. And in it he's saying, here's how I want you to respond to me. If you value me most, here's how I want you to respond to me. And he says things like this. Let me read you one of the Psalms. We'll put it up on the screen. Psalm 47, verse 1. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. <laughs> if you don't like loud music, you're going to hate heaven. It's God's saying this. Psalm 149, verse 3, says this. Let them praise his name with dancing, making a melody to him with tambourine and lyre. But here's the deal. I didn't have to teach my kids these psalms for them to respond to the things they value most to do this. Do you know why? Because we're all worshipers, and we were created to worship. If you ever go and visit a country where there's uh, unreached people, and hopefully everyone here will get to, but maybe you won't, they're all worshiping. Never heard about Jesus, never read the Psalms, never had the Bible. They might be worshiping the sun, they might be worshiping a cow, they might be worshiping their ancestors, but they're all worshiping. If you don't ever get to visit a country with unreached people, turn on your TV. Every channel is worship. You watch a sporting event. It doesn't matter if it's UNC, NC State, Duke. They all, we have our different traditions, different hand motions, different songs. But when some kid who's 19 years old puts a ball in a hoop, yeah! We're celebrating, and no one told us we had to. We delight in it because we were made to do it, not because we were commanded to. Now, the traditions can be weird. <laughs> I remember the first UNC basketball game I went to with an alum, 
And I said, I thought y'all were the Tar Heels. What's that ram doing here? And he looked at me like, why are you asking so many questions? And church can be like that for people too. We've got our ways of doing things. We've got stuff that happens. But we were made to worship. And so you can change it from sports on your TV. Go to a dance competition and the judges will rave about someone who's mastered their craft. Or go to The Voice and they'll talk about what's happening with someone's vocal cords. Or go to a cooking show and look at all the adjectives that are used to describe food that you can't smell, touch, taste, but you're experiencing it because someone's praising so much. Go to the History Channel, an archaeological dig, a document that's being read, and a professor will rave in praise of something that's happening because we were made to worship. But we get to decide what we worship. I like what David Foster Wallace said. He says it like this. He says once, he said this. Here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. Now here's my main overarching point today as we go back to this passage and look at this passage. Is that wonder-filled worship of God leads to a radical response to Jesus. Wonder-filled, and that's what that, that look like, like you have Red Rider BB gun look, the thing that comes out of the box that you've always wanted to look, for, have a baby, see something you've never seen before, the kids clapping their hands, celebrating, that wonder-filled heart, that kind of worship, it leads to a radical response to Jesus Christ. And I prayed, I don't always pray this, but I prayed before the first service, God, will you speak to me through my own message? And, he, and I think he spoke to my heart of something I didn't give the first service, and so if you're in a small group with somebody in the first service, maybe you can give this to him. What we're really doing as we walk through this passage of Scripture is like a heart exam today. And we're going to see, there's, I told you there's three words for worship that are used in this passage, or three times the word is used in this passage. There's three responses. What we're really going to see is three different heart conditions. And my hope for you and for me is that as we walk through this passage of Scripture, that he will reveal our hearts to us. See, we see these three different responses. The first one is a hypocritical humility. And that's what we see with Herod. As I reflect on it, it's a hard heart that responds with a hypocritical humility. And it's a whole lot easier to diagnose in someone else than it is in ourselves. So let's look at Herod first. And warning, then I'm going to ask you some questions. You see, what happens here is that these wise men, they come into town, right? Like, we've read verses 1 and 2. How many wise men were there? Three. Some people say, yeah, we don't know. Some of you said, we don't know. We don't know. Our tradition says there's three. The Bible doesn't say that. So don't tell me stuff's not in the Bible. Like, we get that because there's three gifts later. Anybody here ever given three gifts and you're just one person? Okay. But they're expensive gifts. Eastern tradition says there were 12 wise men. I'm sorry. I'm messing y'all's nativity sets up. You just get those wise men out of there, all right? There might have been 50 of these dudes. We don't know. There could have been three. There might have been one. There might have been 50. There were a lot of people, though. Here's how we know this. Because when they came into the town, it says they were saying, and it's present tense participle, so they were saying it to everybody that would listen. Where's the one born king of the Jews? Where's the one born king of the Jews? Like, you don't know, so I'm going to ask you. And you don't know, and so I'm going to ask you. You don't know, and so I'm going to ask you. And they keep asking repeatedly until the entire city is upset. One guy doesn't upset the entire city. So there's an entourage, if there is one guy, or there's maybe 50 of them, and they're coming in, and they're asking this question of Jewish people, where's the one you've been anticipating for 4,000 years who's been born, and we saw his star, 
And the whole place is troubled. It says, says, Herod is troubled, verse 3. Before I read that to you, let me help you read verse 3. Let me give you a little history. Herod's the king of the Jews, but he's not the king. Rome rules the world. Rome is in charge of everything. But try and put yourself, Caesar is his name, in Caesar Augustus' position. How do you rule places you've never even visited? And you don't have email. Or Twitter. You can't text message somebody. Like some of you here, your parents, I see you got some kids in here. And you, do you remember what it was like to go from no kids to one kid? That'll change your life. And then go from one kid to two kids. And some of you have gone from two to three. A lot of times the joke, if you hang around Bridge Kids, you'll hear it. The joke is we went from man to man to zone coverage. We went from three to four. They broke the zone. They're hitting jumpers everywhere, okay? How do you manage with like just three or four people? Some of you own businesses. Some of you are managers in businesses. Some of you work in spots. You've got responsibility over other people. And not only now do you have to do your job, but you're responsible for how they do their job. How do you do that? With no email? And you never meet them and never get to talk to them. See, the way that Caesar did it is he appointed other kings under him. And Herod was one of those kings. And he appointed him to be king of the Jews. Here's the problem with Herod. He's not Jewish. He's Edomian. The Jews never accepted him. And so when they say the one born king of the Jews, that's significant. And here's something else that's ironic about this passage is that Caesar Augustus, he's the first Caesar to call himself Augustus. That was a term that was only used of Roman gods until this point. He's claiming himself to be deity. The reason why he claims deity, he traces it back to his father, Julius Caesar. You may remember him from history classes in school. Julius Caesar was his dad. And when he died, there was a sighting of a star in the sky. Some people believe it was a comet. And he said, that means my dad was deity. I'm the son of God. And so here you've got a guy, Herod, whose whole life is serving this guy, Caesar Augustus, who claims to be a son of God based on a star, who's the king of the Jews but not born king of the Jews. Now these guys show up and they're going, where's the one born king of the Jews? We saw his star and now we're here. You can understand why Herod's upset. Look what happens. Verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And so was the whole city of Jerusalem. And all Jerusalem with him. And assembling the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them. No one said that the one born king of the Jews was the Christ. But Herod makes that conclusion. Herod says, where's the one born? Where's the one that's the Christ? Where's he to be born? Verse 5, they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea. So they got these new characters, scribes and chief priests, and they come in and they answer. It's Micah 5.2. It's an easy answer for them. It'd be the equivalent of a PhD in the Bible being asked, how many people does God love? And they go, John 3.16, God loves the world. Never made a person he doesn't love. Can I go now? <laughs> they say, Micah 5.2. And then they quote Micah 5.2, verse 6. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly, ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring word, bring me word, that I too may come and worship him. And so here he humbly says that he wants to worship the one born king of the Jews. And if you've been around church or ever read this story before, you're like, He's a liar. Well, let me give you this statement first, and then we'll unpack Herod a little bit. What we say we worship doesn't determine what we worship. 
And don't just think about Herod. Think about your own heart. Think about this church, churches around the triangle. What we say we worship is not necessarily what determines our worship. Remember what worship is. It's our response to what we value the most. And so here you've got Herod, and I could easily tell you how wicked he is and how awful he is just looking at history or even what we see in the Bible. There's a story that comes next that usually gets skipped over at Christmas time where Herod kills all the babies in Bethlehem. There's probably about 20 of them. It's a small town, only about 1,000, 20 baby boys. They're two years old and younger. But for those families, think about how awful that Christmas was. And we don't like to think about that very much. He's a, so we know that he's lying, but the reality is we could look at his life and, like, I thought to myself, what if I preached Herod's funeral? What would I say? And do you know, life's more complicated than what we oftentimes portray on, in sermons. It's kind of like TV. Have you seen how TV has changed? Like it used to be a TV show was 30 or 40 minutes and it would start with a problem. There'd be some jokes in the middle and then we'd solve the problem at the end. And that's kind of how sermons are structured a lot of times. But there's a reason why we like Netflix. It kind of leaves us hanging at the end. And like, that's why you binge watch. That's why it's like you get to the end of the episode. It's like no solution. Oh, it's a me- there's more problems. What happens next? And next thing you know, you've been watching TV for five hours. Because It's complicated. Herod's life's complicated. And I thought, if I preached his funeral, I could say, he made a profession of faith. I want to worship Jesus. And let me read you some of his resume. Herod, he was a clever, capable, warrior, diplomat, orator. You could say lots of things about speeches he gave, wars, like all kinds of stuff. But listen to some of his accomplishments. During the famine of 25 BC, he melted down various gold objects in the palace, that's his money, to give food to the poor. So from his own money, he's feeding the hungry people. The politician, in times of severe economic hardship, he gave back tax money collected from the people. Can you imagine a politician who says, we're just going to let you keep your money. They don't exist. This guy did. He built, he built some amazing things. He built uh, Masada. We're gonna, some of you are going to come with us to, to Israel in March. We're going to see this almost impenetrable fortress. He built it. He built for the people theaters, racetracks, other structures to provide entertainment. So for people, when you're not working, going to be able to relax, have some hobby. I'm thinking about you as a leader. He built some of this stuff. In 19 BC, he began to reconstruct the temple in Jerusalem. So let me put this into Raleigh language. There's a guy in our town who makes a profession of faith. He's a commercial real estate developer. He built, say, North Hills, say some big structure here, the, the Red Hat building, whatever building, pick it. And he took money out of his own wealth to feed hungry people in the community when times were tough. When the recession hit in 2008, he created jobs that were, they weren't making any money. He was just paying out of it. He melted the gold. He was paying them out of his own money. He built a church here in Raleigh. Do you know what we'd do if that guy died? We'd name a building after him. We'd honor him. He'd be like a hero. He made a profession of faith. But then I can also tell you about Herod's heart. Because it's true, he did a lot of good deeds. He's got quite a resume, but let me tell you something. God's not interested in your resume. He wants your heart. See, Second Chronicles chapter 16 and verse 9 says that he's searching all over the world. You talk about how Satan wants to devour. He's going to and fro the whole world looking for whom he can devour. God's going over the whole world looking for whose heart is fully his. 
And the cornerstone passage on worship in the Bible, it's in John chapter 4, if you want to study it on your own, that Jesus says that God's seeking for true worshipers. And what's a true worshiper? They worship him in spirit and truth. Spirit is from the heart. Truth is accurately for who he is, not who we make him up to be. Louis Giglio, in the article that, that we, I stole that definition from for this message, he says this, How do you know where and what you worship? It's easy. You simply follow the trail of your time, your affection, your energy, your money, and your loyalty. At the end of that trail, you will find a throne, and whatever or whomever is on that throne is what's of highest value to you. On that throne is what you worship. And so when you look at your money and your affection and your attention and your time and your gifts and like all those things, where do they lead you to? And for Herod, you know what you find out for Herod? Herod's life was all about power. He was the one on the throne. And so he killed his brother-in-law, who was the high priest. He went to the funeral and pretended to weep there. But he killed his brother-in-law because he was afraid of losing power. Killed his wife, whose brother that was that he killed, because he was afraid of losing power, that she was going to give it to some of the kids. Killed two of his own sons. And he died a miserable man. And we know he's lying because we know what happens, why he was trying to get this information about Jesus wasn't to worship him, it was to kill those other children because he was trying to kill Jesus. One commentator I said, I read this week, said this about him, Kent Hughes was his name. He said, he didn't want Jesus to be king because if Jesus is king, Herod, Herod couldn't be. Now, now let's not talk about Herod, let's talk about us. Um, if Jesus is king, you can't be. And when you follow the trail of your heart, you might have a good resume and you may serve here. Maybe you were here on Wednesday night and maybe you do some great stuff in our community. But when you look at your heart, is it a hypocritical humility that might profess Jesus with your lips, but if your heart's far from him, he says that you are a hypocrite. And I don't tell you that to condemn you. I tell you that to warn you because I want you to know. What's the other response? The next response we see in this passage, we read over already, uh, verses four through six, it was an apathetic response. It's an apathetic heart. It's so hard that you might know the truth, but it doesn't move you. There's no wonder in that. It's just familiarity. And that's what happened with the, they were called the chief, all the chief priests and all the scribes of the people. Their job is to teach people the Bible. And so they get called in, say, where's the one who's the Christ? He doesn't say the one born king of the Jews, like the wise men were saying. He says, where's the Christ, the Messiah, the one we've been waiting for for thousands of years? And everybody in the, the city knows there's these guys who have been asked these questions that have stirred stuff up, have made Herod mad, made everybody in the city scared. And they say, Micah 5-2. And it doesn't tell us this, but it's implied in the passage. They went back to study their Bible some more. Oh, man, I'm not against studying the Bible, just to be clear. But it's possible to love reading this book, to love being around God's people, to go from Bible study to Bible study and small group to small group, to talk a lot about Jesus, to memorize verses about Jesus, to sing songs about Jesus, and to never encounter Jesus. Let me give you a little geography lesson here. They're in Jerusalem, Bethlehem is five miles away, and they don't go. These wizards from the east, these pagans, why is it that Matthew shows the women that he shows in his genealogy? Why is it that? Because he's a savior for all people. And he's showing us, and you read throughout the gospels, the religious people miss it. The political leaders miss it. But the people who get it, they got, there's a wonder about Jesus, a desire for Jesus. 
And for some of us, we've got these apathetic hearts. And we can identify because we just want to stay in our comfort zone. And so what we do is we recreate Jesus. He's a Jesus we can talk about. He's real comfortable for us. He kind of may exist even for our comfort. He's kind of like, a, I say he's like a nativity version of Jesus, not the Bible version. The Bible version of Jesus is radical. He demands a radical response. He says that you're supposed to turn your other cheek. He says you're supposed to love your enemy. You're supposed to forgive those or God won't forgive you. If you don't forgive those who sin against you, God's not going to forgive you. So we just like disregard a bunch of that stuff as American Christians. And we talk about Jesus is going to help fulfill all of our dreams. We make Jesus in our own image. God made us in his image. We've been returning the favor for a long time. And so we get this plastic version of Jesus. Is it any wonder why we don't wonder about Jesus? I'm sure some of you, our daughter loves little plastic figurines. She's eight years old. She calls them hard toys. And she, there's thousands of them at our house. Okay, We've run them over with a lawnmower before, knocks her face off, and she still has them. She still thinks they're incredible. Every one of them has a story. Every one of them has a name. Okay, she'd be like an incredible pastor. She knows all their stories, all their names, and like, I just find them around. I don't want to step on them, okay? That's like my thing. If you step on one, you'd hate these things, okay? They're they're painful. Otherwise, I don't even acknowledge they exist. The other day, she had one in our our living room. It was in the, we got this rug, it's got this thick carpet on it. It was in the carpet. I picked it up. It was a lion. I set it on this table. She came running from across the room. She's like, you fixed him. Like, fixed him? I just wanted to not step on him. What are you talking about? So he couldn't walk. His leg was broken. She gets down in his face. She's talking to him. She's all excited like for him in this process. I didn't even know the thing existed in our house. It's a lion. I didn't even know it was in our house. Have you ever seen a real lion? They're pretty majestic, aren't they? Whether you've been to the zoo or maybe some of you have been able to be on a safari or you've seen them in the wild in some way. Like I'm not talking about on TV. If you see a real, like they're, mu- they're just muscles everywhere. Just like muscles move. And they got hair, like hair like Matthew McConaughey. They're like, all right, all right, all right. Like if you see a lion, they're like there. There's this confidence just like dripping off of them. You know why? Because a lion's like, what are you going to do? I'll kill you. <laughs> like if I had a real lion in my house, I would have known it. Little plastic version. I'm not dangerous easy to be apathetic about. Do you know that the God of the Bible is the Lion of Judah? That he came, do you know what he was doing on the cross? It wasn't like this sympathetic, I'm going to give you a hug. He was absorbing the wrath of his father on the cross to defeat sin and defeat death for you. How do we get apathetic about a Savior like that? Oh, I know what we do. We create our own version of him. He's not dangerous. He's not scary. He's like Jesus 2.0, the American version. And he's real boring. But the real Jesus, he demands a radical response. And that's what the wise men in this passage understood. And so they go and worship. Yeah, they were created for worship, but do you know why else? Do you know why else they go worship him? Look at the next verse, because we see it here. I've read to you through verse 8. Look at verse 9. Look at verse 10. It says, after listening to the king... They, talking about the wise men, the magi, these wizards, pagans, whatever you want to call them, went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them. Listen, the star didn't lead them to Jerusalem, by the way. They were 900 miles away. They saw a star. They're looking for the one who's been born king of the Jews. They just go to Jerusalem because it makes sense. The star went away. They show up in Jerusalem. They'd be baffled. Like, how does everyone here not know where this guy's at? The star went away. They hear the scriptures. Look at how God's sovereignly putting these pieces together. They think they're pursuing Jesus. Jesus is pursuing them. 
And then the star appears again. It rose, went before them, until it came to rest over the place where the child was. This might have been the Shekinah glory of God that led people in Israel. Like, stars don't do this. They don't even travel in the direction this passage is talking about. It miraculously stops over this house. It says, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Here's why. Here's why they're worshiping. You weren't just created to worship. You were created to worship God. We get to pick what we worship, but here's what happens when we have wonder-filled worship. Wonder-filled worship satisfies our soul. Matthew's going out of it. He could have said, they were excited. That's not what he says. Let me read you verse 10 again. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. He's going out of it. Four words just to talk about joy here. Rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Jesus is the only one that will satisfy your soul. I alluded to it already, the John 4 passage. It's the cornerstone passage in the New Testament about worship. And if you don't know the passage, what ends up happening is Jesus makes the promise, I'm the only one that will satisfy your soul. He's sitting at a well, and this woman comes. It's the middle of the day. There's a lot of history to understand. I'm trying to get into all the details. She's coming in the middle of the day because she's ashamed of herself, because of all that she's experienced in life. She doesn't want to come when the other women come early in the day, late in the day. She's coming in the middle of the day, the hottest time of the day. And so try and picture this woman. She's coming up this mountain, and, and she'd be worn out. You met somebody who's worn out? Like, life's been hard on her. She's made some bad decisions. Some of it's her responsibility. Sometimes it's been abuse. There's been a lot of stuff that's happened. Her face is wrinkled. She's used up. She's worn out. She's coming in the middle of the day because she doesn't want to see anybody. And who's there? A man sitting at the well. Men in her life have been her greatest desire and her greatest source of pain. And she comes up, and this man, Jesus, says to her, give me a drink. Great, another guy who just wants something from me. What do you think she thought in that moment? What we oftentimes don't understand as Americans we read this passage is this is a racially tense passage. It's a sexually tense passage. It's a politically tense passage. Jews didn't speak to Samaritans. Men didn't speak to women. That's why when, his, when his, his buddies come back, the disciples show back up, they don't ask the question because they don't dare ask him this question, but the Gospel of John tells us, they thought, why is he talking to her? There's sexual tension, racial tension, political tension, and, and so Jesus is sitting there, he's always confident. He says, if you knew who was asking you, you'd ask me for a drink. She doesn't get it. You don't have a bucket. All thinking about earthly stuff. Was that? I have living water. That when you get this water, it'll, it'll become a spring in you. Think about a spring as the source, the welling up to eternal life. You, when you have me, you'll always have this source. You can always come to me, and I will always satisfy you. She's still thinking earthly. She goes, I want to drink of it. Well, how do I get this water? Give me this water. And he says, and he confronts the thing that's stopping her from experiencing this water. He says, go call your husband. It's her idol. You follow the trail of her life. What you will find is that what's on the throne of her life is men. Different men, but men. And she says, I don't have a husband. He goes, you're right, you don't have a husband. The guy you're with right now is not your husband. You've had five husbands. And she goes, you know a lot about, no, that's not what she says. It's really interesting. You'd think that's what she'd say. You know what happens in the passage? She starts talking about worship. Isn't that ironic? But she asks a stupid worship question. It'd be like asking, do you want hymns or Hillsong? That's what it says in the passage. Go read it. If that gets you to read the Bible, great. It's really basically what it says, though. She's like, should I worship here or should I worship here? And Jesus is going, that's a, not even a good question. You don't even know what you worship. 
And then he starts talking about himself. And he says, the Father's seeking true worshiper spirit and truth. And she says, I know that you must be a prophet. I know the Messiah's coming. He goes, I'm the Messiah. I'm the living water. I'm the one that will satisfy. And until you have wonder of who he is, you will not have wondrous worship. Your soul won't be satisfied, and you won't have a radical response to Jesus. But when you do, do you know what happens? God becomes big, and you become small. See, the problem for many of us is we're big. Our problems are big. Our life is big. Everything in in the world revolves around our lives. We are big because we're on the throne. And God is small, like a little plastic figurine. When we start to, like, just look at how God's revealing himself in this. Yeah, he's telling us a story about these wise men. But you know why they're following a star? Because of a prophecy from the book of Numbers. But how personal to these wise men that he would speak this into their lives and bring them 900 miles to the spot then through the scriptures from apathetic teachers. He would direct their hearts to get to this place that's the house of bread. You know what else Jesus calls himself? The bread of life. So you want to talk about your hunger? I'll tell you how I can satisfy your soul that way. You want to talk about your thirst? I'll tell you how I can satisfy, because I'm the only thing that can satisfy your soul. Do you understand who I am? You live in the midst of storms. I am the God of the storms. You want me to, to deliver you? I'm the God who parted the Red Sea. All those people did is walk through. You me to save you? I'm the one who provided your salvation. All you did was receive it. You see, he's big. We're small. I'm the God that's, there's a reason they call me holy. It means difference. So we were created not just to worship, to worship God. And it leads to a radical response. Look what happens in this passage. Not everybody responds. Herod didn't respond, by the way. You know, you know what we know about Herod? Herod's like a lot of people in Raleigh. He gets everything he wants in life, and he's still miserable. How do we know that? Because history tells us when he died, he had a whole bunch of men in Jerusalem arrested, and they were commanded to kill them upon his death so that the city didn't rejoice over his death. But wait a minute. You kept your throne. That was the most important thing to you. You got your power. You had your money. You got all the stuff you wanted, and you were still empty because you didn't have Jesus. But these guys did, these unnamed men. And what they do next, it's like the woman who pours perfume on Jesus' feet because wonder-filled worship pours itself out in lavish love. Look at verse 11. And going into the house, so they're at a house, not in the stable. They saw the child, not a baby, with Mary as mother. People make a big deal about Mary, but they don't. And they fell down and they worshipped him. Now some people say that worship here is just paying honor to a king. And I would ask the question, then why didn't they do this with Herod? Because he's a king. Because they realized that this is the Messiah. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Different Bible guys, they like to argue about. They didn't know what they were doing. They couldn't have possibly known that gold was, was for a king, a medal of royalty. They couldn't have known that myrrh was used to embalm bodies and that he came to die. And I say, Matthew knew. And he's the one who wrote it down. But here's all you need to know about these gifts. They were expensive. They cost something. But it didn't matter. They weren't bribing God. They weren't trying to get something from God. It was just... I'm responding to what I value most. That's worship. Just like a little boy opening up his Red Rider BB gun, somebody in their sports team. And as a believer in Jesus, that's what we profess. But I ask you this Christmas, is that true? And if it's not true, why? If you're a believer, if you're a believer, why? If you're not a believer, you've got to know him. He'll rock your world. 
But if, if you're a believer, he calls you to deny yourself and take up your cross, and we're going to treat him like plastic figurine. He calls us to give rather than receive. That's how the joy will be found. He doesn't need your money. He doesn't need you to go tell somebody about him. They're going to hear. Somebody will tell them. Somebody who's really in love with them. But he wants to use you. How could we possibly become apathetic? How could our hearts be so hard? And if they are, we've got to turn. Because he demands a radical response.